Yes, that's a way to start it, huh? Brand new teaching series this weekend. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. And in fact, we'll start in chapter 7, verse 22, work our way to chapter 8, verse 4. This is More Than Conquerors, brand new teaching series. We're going to spend about 10 weeks just in Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter, I believe, in the Bible. No Condemnation is the title of this weekend's message. You've heard me say this many times, and you, uh, you'll hear me, hear me say it many more times, that if the gospel isn't the most amazing truth that you have ever heard, then you haven't heard it. If it's not the most amazing message you've ever heard, then you haven't heard it, and it couldn't be more true than as we embark upon this brand new teaching series heading into Romans chapter 8. You can also see there on your notes, it's one thing to understand the gospel, it's one thing to even be able to articulate the gospel, but it is quite another to experience the gospel so deep in your heart that it changes it changes everything about you and becomes the source of your identity, acceptance, security, and significance. That's what I hope and pray happens as we work our way through this uh, Romans chapter 8 through the summer months. I just, I want us to just kind of soak, absorb, enjoy, savor the riches of God's glory. And uh, I feel a little bit like a Kid in a candy store when I read text like this, like all of my wishes and dreams have come true through Jesus Christ. I mean, if you have any idea what, what you have, what we have through Jesus Christ, believe me, you go right through the ceiling. You just go, wow, I can't believe this. This is amazing. Yeah, right on. And uh, that's what this Romans 8 is all about. Uh, and when I'm, uh, I was telling the congregation uh, last service, I said, when I'm on my deathbed, that's the chapter I want you to read to me. In fact, you won't even have to read it to me because I'll just recite it, okay? Because I'm, I'm memorizing it. It's one of those chapters that's just phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. So we're going to take it apart just little by little, work through it week in and week out. It'll take us through the summer months. And anytime that you head into a study, particularly, you know, right in the smack dab in the middle of Romans, kind of need to know the context. I gave you the context there in your notes. So Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 5, in fact, the whole book is about the gospel. Paul talks, uh, says at the very beginning, Romans 1.16, you're probably familiar with it, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In Romans uh, chapters 1 through 5, give us the gospel. Let me give you a summary of the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, you need to know what the gospel is. If you were to ask most people what is the gospel, they wouldn't be able to articulate it. Even a lot of Christians don't know how to articulate it. They would say things that were uh, the byproduct of the gospel, like, oh, it's forgiveness of sins, or I have the presence of God, or any number of things like that. But those are all the byproduct of the gospel. Here's the gospel message. It's about Jesus. Jesus, about what Jesus has done. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son Jesus to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have eternal life. Now, eternal life is more than just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. It's a life that most people, I think most people, if they had any idea, they, this is the life that we all dream about. This is the life that we all want more than anything. And that's the life that we have through Jesus Christ. And um, so this is my third go-round this weekend. I am so stoked about this, uh, these verses. 
So by the time you're leaving here, you should be, I, have, I ought to be able to scrape you off the ceiling, okay, because you're gonna be so flying high with your understanding of what we're gonna talk about this morning. So Romans chapters uh, one through five is the gospel. And then Romans six gives us gospel principles of life change. There's no doubt about the gospel will change your life. And in that chapter, he talks about know the potential of your identity in Christ, live daily out of your identity in Christ. And really what that means is learning how to surrender your life fully to Christ. You're gonna surrender your life to something or, or someone. You're gonna give your life for something or someone. And he's just saying, hey man, Make sure you surrender your life completely to him and understand your identity in him. And that's what begins to transform our life. And then we hit Romans chapter 7. You guys ever read through Romans chapter 7? A big battle there. It's a hard one. It's a tough one. And in Romans chapter 7, it tells us really there why change is so hard. How many have ever found that change is really, really hard in your life? To get rid of maybe the hurts, habits, hang-ups, all the junk in our life? Yeah, why is that? Romans 7 talks about that. And then we have the remedy in Romans 8, how to apply these principles, these gospel principles. So here's the thesis statement for uh, this weekend's message. It goes like this. Life is a battle. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in the tail end of Romans uh, chapter 7, just at the end, those end verses. Life is a battle that you can't lose, that you can't lose if you are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the basic outline of uh, this message this morning. So life is a battle, we're going to talk about that, that you can't lose, you can't lose if you are in Christ Jesus. We'll look at each of those, what the implications of that are, and so there you go. We're going to read the text in a moment, unpack these notes, but let's first of all uh, go before the throne of grace once again to ask for God's help so that we can uh, understand, apply these truths to our lives. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you, we thank you for your presence here, and God... Um, as we saturate ourselves in this great chapter, Romans 8, this summer, may, may our minds be shaped by the gospel. May our hearts be thrilled by the gospel. May our lives be transformed by the gospel. May the love of you, our immeasurably great and transcendent God of the universe, become so real to us. May your love become so real to us that our joy becomes indescribable, indestructible, and uncontainable as we become more and more conquerors, more than conquerors in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Okay, so here we go. So anytime you study the scripture, you're always wanting to not only understand the context of it, but as you kind of walk through it, you're, you're gonna kind of do an observation as you read through it, and then there's the interpretation. So observation is what is it saying? Interpretation is what does it mean? And then there's gonna be the application. You'll see that week in and week out, we tend to kind of do that. So as I read the text, I'm gonna give you just a little bit of observation and some interpretation. We'll interpret it later through our notes as you fill in the blanks, and then we'll certainly in that give the application. So first of all, Romans chapter 7, verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The word that he's using here for law is he's talking about the code of conduct, the Bible, the Ten Commandments. He's just saying, man, I love, I love God's law. I love God's word. I love interacting with him. That's what he's saying here. But then he says in verse 23, But I see in my members, and when he uses the word members, he's talking about my, my ears, my eyes, my hands, my feet, my body, He's going to talk about a struggle that he has. That's how we, we as we live out the struggle, we, we live it out through our bodies. He says, 
but I see in my members another law. Now that word for law there is different from that first one. This is, he's talking about, I see another law, I see a power or a force waging war against the law of my mind. That's just a different way of saying uh, I delight in God's law. So the law of my mind, so it's the law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law, this power of sin that dwells in my members. So he's talking about a battle that's going on deep within him that he, he has this sinful nature and then he also has now, he's put his faith in Christ and he has the, the very nature of Christ and so there's this war going on inside of him and there's almost to this point of frustration because in verse 24 he says, wretched man that I am. You ever get frustrated over, why do I keep saying, why do I keep doing, why do I keep thinking that in my life? Why do I keep struggling over these issues in my life? That's where he is. Wretched man that I am, exclamation mark. Who will deliver me from this body of death, question mark. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, exclamation mark. Yes, it's wonderful. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he's talking about this struggle. Now this is what's, I mean, it's, it's breathtaking as you kind of work down now into chapter eight. It's phenomenal. In fact, if, if everyone could understand and believe and live in the reality of chapter eight, verse one, uh, we would no longer need therapists, counselors, uh, psychologists, and uh, psychiatrists. We'd put them out of business, Okay just with this next verse. So keep in mind, in the midst of our struggle with sin, struggle with life, with temptations and trials and difficulties and all of that, what am I gonna do? God help me. He says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that sin that you're struggling over, guess what? I'm not gonna hold that against you. I will never, ever, ever hold that against you. That's what he's saying. Isn't that amazing? That's that's incredible. All that stuff you've done, all that stuff I've done, all that stuff I will do and you will do, I'll never ever hold that against you. No condemnation. And so that's, he's talking about justification there. That's the doctrine of justification. We'll talk more about that as we work through it. And then in verse two, he gives us the doctrine, he's given us the, really, it's the doctrine of sanctification. So it's one thing to, to, to have peace with God and to stand right before him, but it's altogether another thing as God begins to work in our life and brings about a wholeness, and the Bible calls it holiness or sanctification. And that's what he says in verse two. For the law of the sin of life, for the law of the spirit of life, I'm sorry, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He's talking sanctification there. Now, in verses three and four, he's gonna, in verse three, he's gonna explain how we get verse one, justification, no condemnation, how we get that. And then in verse four, he's gonna explain how we get the sanctification, which is verse two. You guys tracking with me? Okay. And so in verse, verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. What are you talking about there? Cross, the cross, crucifixion. Jesus died for you and I. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. And then he's gonna tell us, okay, so, so what about my struggle with sin? 
Well, he says that. He talks about how for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, he explains how that happens in verse four. So I'm justified so that Christ can begin to sanctify my life in verse four in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not by us, but in us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So what is the righteous requirement of the law? Well, Jesus was asked to summarize the law, and what did he say? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, so what it's saying here is that, that to the degree that you begin to understand your justification is to the degree that the, the sanctification will begin to work in your life, and you're gonna become a more loving person. You're gonna be, begin to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're gonna love your neighbor as yourself. It's gonna begin to work out in that way. Notice what he says who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Okay, so here we go. Life is a battle. That's verses 22 through 25. Here's your first fill in the blanks. There are two competing desires in a Christian's heart. So so once again, the thesis statement we're heading towards, life is a battle that you can't lose if you are in Christ Jesus. So life is a battle, two competing desires in a Christian's heart. What are they? You have a desire for God, verse 22. I delight in the law of God. But there's also a competing desire within my heart. So you're talking about this law, this power, this force. How does that work its way out in my life? It it works its way out in in a desires, in my desires within my heart. And so I've got a desire for God, but I also have this desire for counterfeit God or gods. He says that in verse 23, another law waging war against the law of my mind. Law of my mind, once again, is synonymous with his delighting in the law of God. And so two competing desires in a Christian's heart. For God, verse 22, for counterfeit gods, verse 23. That's that's where the battle is. That's right where the battle is. Now, you guys remember we did a teaching series, those of, uh, those of you that have been with us, we did a teaching series through the book of Galatians, phenomenal book of freedom. We went through in the fall, you could go back and listen to them on your app or on our website, but in there, there was a verse that summarizes this battle really quite well, this battle found in Romans chapter 7, and the verse is Galatians 5.17. Notice what it says. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. You familiar with that verse? So there's this battle going on inside of us. The desires of the flesh. What are the desires of the flesh? I called the flesh an empty ego trying to fill itself up on anything other than God. It's I'm trying to find a sense of meaning, purpose, and direction in my life from something in creation rather than from the creator. That would be the spirit. The spirit's trying to show me, hey, my sense of security and identity and meaning is found in God. Not horizontally, vertically in God. That's the battle that's going on. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So, okay, take a look at your notes. So I, I wrote some things out to kind of wa- so, uh, to help you to understand this, to walk through this. So it's not so much that we want bad things, it's that we want good things too badly. Does that make sense? See that, so that's where the battle is. The battle within my heart that he's talking about, it's not that I want bad things, it's that I have good things that I want too badly. And I put... Uh, Romans 7, 7 there, because that's what what Paul was talking about. He's talking about covetousness. And Paul is almost like he went through the list of Ten Commandments and did the first one, 
You shall have no other gods before. Oh, I'm good at that one. I'm good at the next one. He went all the way through the list and all of a sudden he comes to covetousness and he realized, woo, I'm not very content. There's a lot of things that I want. And, and so that's what that zinged him and that's really covetousness. It's thinking that it's adding anything to God as, as you, the source of your happiness uh, and, or even looking to other things other than God as your source of happiness. So we turn good things into ultimate things. An ultimate thing is anything or anyone more central to your acceptance, security, and significance than God. So that's a good thing, like a marriage or wanting to get married or, or wanting to have children or how your children turn out or it can be a career, it can be money in the bank, it can be fitness or sports, it can be any number of things. That what I'm saying about those, those things horizontally, those creation things, that if I have that, my life has meaning. You might not be saying that to yourself consciously, but maybe subconsciously. It's a good thing that has become an ultimate thing in your life rather than letting God be the ultimate thing in your life. And so there's three question tests that I ask myself regularly as I'm kind of walking through this. And this is how I'm able to identify my, my counterfeit gods, my pseudo-saviors, those good things in my life that have become ultimate things. Because we all have them, by the way. You, you all have one or a number of these things operating in your life, and you need, to find, you need to figure out which are yours. See, these are those things in our life that are competing for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from God. These are the things that we're giving our heart to more so than we are to God. And uh, so here's my questions. What do you inordinately get anxious about? I say inordinately because a, a little bit of anxiety is, is actually good. We're emotional beings and some of that can be good. I'll talk about that a little bit more, but so that's one question. What am I getting anxious, inordinately anxious about? What do I get inordinately uh, angry about? And you do get angry. My wife thought, thought for years that she never got angry because she, her anger was passive aggression until I confronted her with the fact that why did you change all the locks in the house when I came home from work <laughs> if you're not angry? Why would you do that and not give me a key? That hurts. I'm not angry. And uh, so that's passive aggression. So you got to figure out how do you, whether it's passive or open aggression, you, there's anger that, that's in your life somehow, or you might even be stuffing it and look out. You're ready to, like at a volcano, you're going to explode one of these days. That's, that's scary. Something's going to tip you off, and you, like a hot water heater without a relief valve. You're going to go off. You're gonna, people are going, what was that about? I'm just ticked off. Well, why are you so ticked off? I don't know. I just got all this. Whatever. Okay, start looking. Start looking down in your heart. What's going on? So what do you inordinately get anxious about? What do you inordinately get angry about? What do you inordinately get depressed about? Now, this is what I do is I look at my inordinate, not just my inordinate negative emotions, but I also look at my, in, my inordinate desires. And I look at, at things that I want, and if I want those things, if I want something in creation more than I want the creator, I'm not living in touch with reality. Because, listen to me, nothing will satisfy, you hear me say this a lot, nothing will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul like the creator. If you're more excited about that job promotion or that raise or that money in the bank or that career advancement or that marriage or, or any number of things more so than your relationship with God, you're not in touch with reality. Those are all good, but don't turn them into an ultimate thing. 
God is the one that will satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's how he created us. He created us that way, and that's where we're going we're gonna to find our deepest satisfaction. But we, we struggle. The battle is between me, me putting something in God's place in my life. And so, so I, look at, I look at my desires, and then I look at my inordinate negative emotions, because that's going to tell me where I've given my heart to. And so um, it works something like this. If a good thing in your life is threatened, if a good thing in your life is threatened, you're going to worry. You heard rumors that they're going to have layoffs, and so it would be kind of normal for you to somewhat worry, blow the dust off your resume and get it out there because you might be needing to look for another job. And It's, it's all right to have a, a certain level of, of worry in that, but if that good thing, your job, has become an ultimate thing, you're not just going to worry, you're going to be paralyzed with fear and fall apart. And, and that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. It just it can, eating too much, drinking too much, exercising too much, trying to medicate yourself in some way. If a good thing, if a good thing is blocked by somebody, you'll get angry. You know, you deserved that promotion or that raise or you didn't get that date with the person you wanted to get a date with and someone less deserving got that promotion or raise or date or whatever. It's normal to be angry. But if it is an ultimate thing in your life, you're not just going to be angry. You're going to be bitter and rage. And so it's going to get a hold of your heart. It's, if a good thing is lost, you're going to be sad. Your significant other ran off with another lover. That, that should make you sad. There's no doubt about it. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not just going to be sad. You're going to be depressed and maybe even suicidal. Because that other person was your everything. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? I mean, that's, that's how we're wired up. That's how we're wired up. And that's how I can tell that I've overly attached my heart to something more so than I, I, have, I have God. And uh, Have you guys been watching any of the Olympic trials? Olympic trials? Just me? Just me? There's like two, three of us. Ooh, what's the Olympic trials? What's the Olympics? My goodness! This is my favorite time, you know, every four years when the Olympics come around. It's exciting. I mean, we're getting, to rather, we're getting together our team, Olympic team. They're working through the trials. Michael Phelps, you guys know Michael Phelps? Personally? No, okay. I didn't think so. But, but I'll talk a little bit more about him in a, in a little bit. But... Uh, but I mean, the Olympic trials, so I was watching the Olympic trials this last week, it was actually more of the swimming, and I've been watching the track stuff too, and right at the end of it uh, came on the American Ninja Warrior. That guy always says it just like that, it's kind of weird. It's like, why does he always do that? But uh, American Ninja Warrior, you guys know what I'm talking about there? Okay, and so, so I gave this little, in, at the front end of American Ninja Warrior, I gave this little bio, and it was a guy, and it was a young man, he grew up in a big city, I think it was Philadelphia. They lived in a lower socioeconomic, high crime area. Parents did all they could to protect him. They worked hard so that he could go to college. And so he was able to go to college. And while he was in college, he was very successful in gymnastics with the hope of going to the Olympics. Yes! We're going to the Olympics! He blew out his knee. It was all over after that. 
And so this is part of his, kind of his life story. And oh, he was dejected. He was depressed. Oh, he was so sad. And as he's trying to work through this loss, remember what I said, when you lose something and you have that depression. And so he's, he's working through this. And all of a sudden, he's got reinvigorated life because along comes American Ninja Warrior. Woo-hoo! I'm thinking, what? You gotta be kidding. And then they interviewed his parents and he goes, yes, yes, he's got new life. He's got new meaning. He's got new purpose in his life. Oh, we are so thankful for him. And I'm thinking, what? You, that's crazy. But I see that happen all the time. I see people do that with, with relationships. They're nearly suicidal, and then they find another one. Oh, I'm, I've got, I'm invigorated. I'm ready for life again. It's like, what the heck? You just traded one counterfeit God with, a, with this counterfeit God? Don't you understand what you're doing? Those are pseudo-saviors. Inevitably, those are going to let you down. Do, do you understand? There's a major difference. There's a major difference between being an American ninja warrior to be your own savior versus being an American ninja warrior to praise your Savior. Do you understand the difference between the two? So let me ask you this. Are you living to justify yourself or are you living because you are justified? Major difference between the two. We're gonna get to our our being justified in Christ. Man, it's, it's amazing what we have in Him. So it's really the difference between are you gonna live, you're gonna either live for your glory or you're gonna live for His glory. Those are the only two choices you have. You don't have any other choices. You shall have no other God before me. That's what he said, the first of the 10. He's like saying, there's not like a third option where you can have no God. You're gonna have a God. You're gonna pursue something. Everybody does because we have to. We were created to put God at the center of our life. If God's not at the center of our life, we're gonna put some other God, a counterfeit God. That's the battle. That's the battle that we're in. That's where it begins to work within our lives. And so... And so if you look to created things to give to you the meaning, hope, happiness that only the creator can give to you, it will inevitably, it will inevitably break your heart. It will inevitably break your heart. You will become stressed out when it is threatened, bitter when it is blocked, and depressed and suicidal when it is lost. See, idolatry, counterfeit gods, pseudo-saviors is the cause of much of our bad feelings and bad behavior. And that's, that's where the battle is. We've got to begin to recognize that. I've given my heart too much to that. I've got to give it to Christ. I've got these inordinate negative emotions operating in my life. And so what we need to do, I mean, we just finished up a whole book. What was the book that we just finished studying? Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a book of futility. He's just saying, you build your life on anything other than Christ, it's meaningless. It's going to lead you to futility. Praise God. That's a work of God in your life so that you will come to him to find meaning and purpose. So let those inordinate emotions, futility, lead you to Christ and it leads you to, here's the next uh, couple fill in the blanks. There are two, so two competing desires, two completing cries in a Christian's heart, two completing cries in a Christian's heart. Here's the first one, discouragement, verse 24. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The word deliver here means to rescue from danger. It is used of a soldier pulling his wounded comrade from the battlefield. Pretty desperate how he's using this, very descriptive language. And then the body of death is an interesting, 
Interesting picture here, believers, uh, he's talking about a believer's unredeemed parts, his hurts and his habits and his hangups and his struggle with sin. Tradition says that an ancient tribe near Tarsus, where Paul, where the apostle Paul grew up, this is what they would do. They tied the corpse of a murder victim to its murderer, allowing its spreading decay to slowly infect and eventually execute the murderer. So you murder someone, they're gonna tie their body to you and let you drag this person around with you. This is perhaps the image Paul has in mind. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But notice there's hope. Two completing cries, discouragement. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Hope, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is what I love about Christianity. Christianity is not a denial of reality. Put on a happy face, just ignore what's happening to you. It doesn't deny reality. In fact, you can see he's facing the reality of the broken world and his own brokenness, but in the midst of that reality, he's got a greater reality. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christianity is shockingly honest and hopeful at the same time. Now, I know we live in a world kind of postmodern. A lot of these young hipster-type Christians and people out there, they like the movies where everything blows up at the end and everybody's dead and it's all over, and that's the end of the movie. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of postmodern. And so there are actually churches that they, you know, they, they're really certainly in touch with the honesty of how busted up and broken the world is, but you got to move it to the hope part. you got to balance it up. But then you can all be all about hope and be out of touch with, reality of the honesty. You've got to have both. You can swing to one extreme or the other. And so in the midst of the reality, and this is what the Bible says, and when we look at the cross, we're reminded of both of those, that when you look at the cross, that it tells us that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful, there was no other way. We, we, could, we could be reconciled to God. Jesus had to die for us. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. We are more sinful than we ever dared to think. But, but, See, that's the honesty, but where's the hope? The hope is that you and I are more loved than we ever dared to dream. He loved us so much, he wanted to die for us. When we look around in this world, we see it's pretty busted up, it's broken up. We live in a fallen world. The Bible tells us that over and over again. This world is more fallen and broken than we want to admit, but God's grace is more sufficient than we'll ever, ever, ever need. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. No doubt about it. But Jesus said, I, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Now listen to me. Everybody look up here. There is no sin, there's no sin that you have committed. There's no sin that you are currently committing or will commit. And there's no sin that has been committed against you by someone that's done evil and wicked things against you. So there's no sin that you've committed, no sin that has been committed against you is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace. Yeah, we have to acknowledge the brokenness of our lives and of the world and the hits that we take, and yet his grace is beyond that to bring healing, help, hope. That's what he's talking about here. That's why, I mean, when you look at the, the tragedy of Romans 7 and then you enter into Romans 8, oh my goodness, there's hope. There's amazing hope in the midst of that. The more you understand God's redeeming and restoring grace, the less you'll ever see any person or situation as hopeless. How many have ever come across someone and thought, that'd be the last person to ever come to Christ? 
Anybody ever feel like that? Let's be honest. Yeah. I knew some of you before you came to Christ. That was pretty messed up. I'm thinking, oh, God, you got a lot of work to do here. He goes, got it covered, dude. Get out of the way. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's absolutely amazing. Here's the next uh, thing on your notes here. So no one ever gets so advanced that they don't struggle with sin. You guys cool with that? Are you guys, are you guys all right with that? You're never going to get so advanced you're not going to struggle with sin. You're gonna, so guess what? We're, just, we're a bunch of fellow strugglers. And this battle will not be over until we get to heaven. So, so what that does is it creates, it creates a safe environment for other fellow strugglers to come along and, and with us and to say, hey, yeah, oh, you struggle? Yeah, I do too. Oh, okay, cool. We got a Savior. Let's look to him. Oh, let's do that together. Fantastic. I love it. That's the gospel. And in fact, the more mature and spiritually discerning we get, the more we see sin in our hearts and the more grace becomes amazing. The reason why grace isn't very amazing right now is because probably you're not in touch with your own struggle with sin. And uh, you're probably deceiving yourself in some way because it tells us in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And you're really missing out on, on what God has for you in that. So there's, there's life is a battle, but now we come to the solution, phenomenal, that you can't lose. Why? Verses one through four. And we can't lose this battle because you have been, number one, set free from the penalty of sin, that's verse one, through Christ's work, that's verse three. This is called justification. It's an imputed righteousness. And uh, what I've been doing, I would encourage you to do this. Begin to take uh, Romans chapter 8 and write it down on three by five cards or however best you can uh, begin to memorize it. I've been taking uh, these. And if you're like me, if you're old like me and you wake up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep, guess what I do? I, I begin to recite these. Oh my goodness, I've had some rich time. Rich times with the Lord as I'm reciting and recalling. And then even if I do get up, I begin to pray. Oh my goodness, it's been wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And so... Uh, I begin to go over this in my mind, and I've already memorized the first four verses, and now next week I'll be memorizing the next as I work through this, and, and God is making this come alive to me, unbelievably, the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's been some sweet time with the Lord, and this is, this is part of it. He set us free from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, that your sin, all of your sins, Past, present, future will never, ever, 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 ever be held against you. Listen to me. No condemnation. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, uh, and it's because of Christ's work. Uh, turn to the person next to you, and we talk about this a lot, and see if they know the difference between good advice versus good news. Real quick, do that. Okay, maybe, are you guys thinking maybe good advice is more about what you must do? Are you, are you guys saying that? Okay, so the Bible, the gospel is not good advice. Good advice is what you must do to be right with God. It's not about good advice, it's about good news. It's about what has been done to make us right with him. It's done. 
It's done. It's completed. You don't have to do anything except put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You have access to the throne room of God. He will never, ever hold your sin against you. Isn't that crazy? That's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. There's no double jeopardy. You guys know what double jeopardy is? Oh, that was a great movie. Woo. No, no, no. Not the movie. No, he, he's not going to have you pay for what has already been paid in full through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just because it would be unjust for him not to forgive us of our sins because it's already been paid for. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, it, it's, it overwhelms me. It's good news about what has been done to make us right with God. Here's some verses that help us, Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 helps us to understand how this happened. So we are set free from the penalty of sin, that's verse one, through Christ's work. That's what he's describing through Christ's work. Verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. He's talking about the cross and this is also talking about the cross. Second Corinthians 5.21, for he who knew no sin, who's it talking about there? Yeah, Jesus, he didn't, he didn't sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is an imputed righteousness. It's justification. Jesus was so committed to your ultimate joy in being reconciled to the Father that he was willing to plunge himself into the greatest depths of suffering for you. See, the more you see that, the more you not just see that but are seized by that, the fact that he lost his beauty to make you beautiful, the more he becomes irresistibly beautiful to you. Isaiah 52, 53 tells us that he lost his beauty. We know that just reading through the Gospels. He was beaten beyond recognition. And he did that for you to pay our sin debt and the more you see what you cost him and how valuable you are to him, the more your worship of him will soar. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and everything that Jesus has done is now legally true about you. And you can approach God as if you are as beautiful, heroic, and faithful as Jesus himself. See, your identity is firmly anchored in Christ's accomplishments, not yours, in his performance and not yours. I still have people say to me all the time, well, I'll start going to church. I, just, I need to get my act together, but if I went to church right now, the roof would come down on me. They, they, you know, they say something like that, or I'm not doing very well because I'm not really living right, and it's like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 time out. Not based on your performance. If it was based on your performance, yes, the roof would come down. It's not. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his performance. Run into his arms of love. 
Even more so when you're having a bad week, bad day, bad month, whatever you're struggling with. Run into his arms. Your approaching him is not based on your performance. If your expectation of God's blessing depends on how well you feel you're living the Christian life, you don't understand grace. We don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing. Therefore, the obedience comes out of that. We'll talk more about that as we work through this. And so it is an immediate status change where God declares us righteous. When I put my faith in the person and work of Christ, boom, right then, I have an immediate status change. I'm a child of God. To be a Christian is a standing, a legal position. You either are or you're not. There's no trying, okay? I, have to, uh, I will ask people, so are you a believer? I'm trying. Why? <laughs> There's no trying. You either are or you aren't. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Yes. Praise God. Praise God. All of your sin was placed on Jesus. You have his righteousness. You either are or you're not. Enjoy the reality of that. He has set you free from the penalty of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is finished. Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all times. He's going to his fifth Olympics has nothing on you and I. I mean, look, he's got, he's got a lot of gold medals, a lot of silver, a lot of money. That's nothing compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. That's absolutely nothing. The pressure is off for all of us to make a name for ourselves. Jesus has made a name for us already. I don't think we understand our identity and what we have in him. The gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves for we are already proven and secure and significant in Christ. Now, now the next one too is really important, obviously. So he set us free from the penalty of sin through Christ's work. And now the next one, here's your next fill in the blank. He, he has set us free. So this is why we can't lose. Life is a battle that you can't lose and here's the second part of this. He has set, set us free from the power of sin. We can't lose because you have been set free from the power of sin. That's verse two, through the Spirit's work. That's verse four. It's called sanctification. So it's imparted righteousness. So it is the process by which those declared righteous are made holy. Those declared righteous are made holy. What is holiness? Holiness is another word for it would be wholeness. He's putting our lives back together. We're living for what we're supposed to be living for, him and him alone. Holiness is becoming so happy in Christ that sin loses its appeal. I got a, a verse here. It's on your notes. You can study this later as you work through the growing notes, but John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father. This is part of uh, what Jesus said in the upper room discourse before he was gonna be hanging on the cross to his disciples. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you, will be in you. Now write another verse down on your notes and let me read it here. It's John 16, 7. This is also important too. John 16, 7. Listen to what he says. I'm gonna challenge you, challenge you with some thoughts here. John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper, who's he talking about there through the helper? 
Holy Spirit, so the helper will not come to you, but if I go away, I will send him to you. What would it have been like to walk around with the all-knowing, miracle-working God of the universe? Can you imagine what that would have been like? Unbelievable. And what Jesus is claiming here in these verses, Jesus claimed that having the Holy Spirit in us would be better than having him, Jesus, beside us. Isn't that what he said? That's what he said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. So he's saying that his Holy Spirit working in us, living in us, is better than having him beside us. So let me ask you this. Do you feel that your relationship with the Holy Spirit is better than if you had Jesus for a personal companion 24-7 beside you? Do you realize that when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he did for you, not only has he set you free from the penalty of sin, but he has set you free from the power of sin and he indwells you by his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit has come to live within you. You are a partaker of his divine nature, as it tells us in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you, do you understand that? That's pretty significant. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. So the work of the Son, verse 3, brings us an objective legal status. That's verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus that is ours whether we feel it or not. And the Spirit, verse 4, brings us a radically subjective experience of our legal status, verse 2. Listen to me. Get, get helplessness and hopelessness out of your vocabulary. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No situation you ever face is helpless or hopeless. If you have the living God living within you to empower you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do. Do you understand that? That's what he's saying. Do you have any idea? He has broken the power of sin working in our lives. Therefore, helplessness and hopelessness should not be in our vocabulary. Yeah, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, life is broken. Yes, I struggle with sin. And yet God's grace is sufficient. It's better. It's bigger. It's stronger than anything I will ever face. I mean, therefore, we should never be overwhelmed by the... And we are, because we don't know the reality of this, but we're overwhelmed by the trials of life and overtaken by the temptations of life is because we don't realize... We are partakers of his divine nature. Now, all my uh, Pentecostal brothers and sisters, right about there, would be going through the ceiling over that. They'd be going, whoa, yes! Bring it, Pastor Ray! That's awesome! We want to experience more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then they'd be running the aisles and all that, and I'd have to say, hey, settle down. Believe me, you begin to understand the implications of this. Like kid in a candy store doesn't even describe it. It's like, no, this is too good to be true. And, and, and we don't even probably live, live out half of that, even if that. There's just a small percentage that we begin to understand and begin to live in this union communion with our Savior who loves us and gave his life for us. It's just, 
It's, it's amazing. Sanctification. And the, and the more we begin to understand that, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. I mean, we are too often like an appliance unplugged from the socket. And as I was studying this out, this, the word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit 30 times in the book of Romans. So the Holy Spirit is mentioned 30 times in the book of Romans. Turn to the person next to you and see if they can guess how many times out of those 30 times it's mentioned in Romans chapter eight. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter eight. So 30 times in the whole book, how many times in Romans chapter eight? Real quick, do that. Okay, let's see how good of guessers you are. So 30 times in the book of Romans, how many times in the, in the eighth chapter? 22. 20 times. <laughs> 20 times. 20 times, 20 times in the book, uh, it's 30 times in the book, 20 times in Romans 8. 15 of those 20 are in the first 16 verses. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a very prominent reality in Romans 8 and the dominant reality in the first 16 verses. You're going to have to come back next week because I'm going to talk about the Spirit-filled life. So how do you, okay, okay, we got, we got these truths. These are legal about us, but how, how do I get it down deep into my heart? I'm going to talk about it next week. How do you live in the reality of that in the Holy Spirit? And how do we really look and live more of that Holy Spirit-filled kind of life? That's what God has for us. It's a, it's a great way to live. Next point's... Uh, on your notes there, this is kind of the next kind of paragraph. So justification is by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. The fruit of sanctification is both a necessary and an inevitable consequence of justification. Does that make sense? In other words, you cannot encounter the living Savior, Jesus Christ, and the work of his Holy Spirit and remain the same. Would you agree with that? He's gonna change your life. You walk in vital union and communion with with Christ through his Holy Spirit that indwells you, it's gonna change you. You're gonna be changed. You can't remain the same. That's the point. But here's a bigger point because this is how it happens, but most importantly, justification is the basis for our sanctification, not the other way around. I don't look to my sanctification to validate my justification. I don't look to say, okay, well, I'm living a pretty good life, so I must be justified. No, 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 don't do that. That's religion. It's your, it's your justification. That's the basis of your sanctification. If you're not doing good in your sanctification, you go back to your justification. You don't reverse that, okay? Because if you reverse it, it becomes a works righteousness. And then you're going to either be filled with pride when you're doing good, or you're going to be in despair when you're not doing so well. You don't base your relationship on God, on your sanctification, how much you have it together, how much you read your Bible and all of that. You do it on your justification, what Christ has done. It's finished. It's a finished work. You go back to that, and that begins to make a difference in your life. In fact, here's the statement. The only sin that can be overcome in your life is forgiven sin. Probably the best example of this is found in John chapter 8. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery? 
And the, the scribes and the Pharisees brought her to the temple before Jesus and his disciples. And I'm still trying to figure out where's the guy. It takes two to commit adultery. But uh, that's how it was kind of a weird, weird situation. And so the scribes and the Pharisees challenge Jesus because they want to trap him. And they say, hey, the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And then Jesus says what? He is without sin, so the first stone. I love it. And they begin to examine their lives and realize, wait a minute, yeah. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walk out. And then Jesus walks over to this woman who no doubt was probably naked, filled with shame, standing before all of the eyes of this crowd. And he says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And Jesus says something that's just profound. He says, and neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, do you notice the order of that? He didn't say, go and sin no more, and I won't condemn you. He said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What was he saying? He's saying, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I will never, ever, ever hold your sin against you. And some of you need to hear that. You have lived with guilt and shame from past sins, present sins, sins that have been committed against you long enough. You don't need to live there anymore. Neither does he, the creator of the universe, condemn you. Go and sin no more. So, so the question is, are you living to justify yourself, American Ninja Warrior? <laughs> or are you living because you are justified in Jesus Christ? See, it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. You get the verdict before the performance. Every other belief system, it's the performance before the verdict. See here, the Buddhism, Buddhism is eightfold path, performance before the verdict. Islam, five pillars. Judaism, 10 commandments. Hinduism, reincarnate until you get it right. <laughs> performance before the verdict. Christianity, verdict. You're my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. See, if there's anything that you should be hearing, and, and if you're not hearing that regularly, we'll talk more about it next week, but if you're not hearing that regularly, deep within your heart, you got too much noise going on in your life. You're too busy. You should be regularly just enjoying the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart saying, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And then out of that, out of that completeness we have in him, then we begin to live out our life for his glory. In fact, it's the verdict. It's the verdict that leads to the performance. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That's what I hope happens to your heart as we work through Romans more than anything. Believe me, believe me, it'll set, it'll set you free unlike you've ever been free before. And so life is a battle. You can't lose if you are in Christ if you're in Christ Jesus, notice what he says in verses one and two, in Christ Jesus. So uh, number one, the most basic description of the experience of being in Christ Jesus is faith. It's faith, so we are justified not by a profession 
of faith, but by the possession of faith. It's not the profession, but the possession. You can profess, but you need to possess. Does that make sense? It's more than just a said faith. I hear people say, oh, I have faith in Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean? Are you living that out? Do you really have a relationship with him? Because that's what that means. And so it's more than an agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites, all other desires. Oh my goodness, you want him. You love him. He gave his life for you. You begin to understand that, so you want to live your life for him. So you begin to live that out in your life, and then what happens when we forget that there is now no condemnation? Here's some of the things that I've seen in my life, I've seen in your lives, but when I don't live in the reality of that, we live with a perpetual guilt, unworthiness, and pain. You know why some of you are just really grumpy more, more than you should be? You know why? It's because you don't understand that there's no condemnation in Jesus. You're not living in the reality of what you have in him. You have his approval. You have his love. You know why you chase after all the junk that you chase after, medicating yourself, getting high, whatever that is, you know, drugs and alcohol and all that junk? Why would you need to do that? If you, if you have your completeness in him, you don't need that stuff. Come on. It doesn't make any sense to me. There's no greater high than knowing him and walking with him and experiencing him. What, what else will happen if I forget this? Sin will be seen as breaking God's laws rather than breaking his heart. Unforgiveness and bitterness towards people who have sinned against us. We're just gonna have a hard time forgiving others. But man, when, when I understand his forgiveness of me, I can begin to forgive others. There'll be a drivenness from a need to prove ourselves. Great sensitivity and defensiveness to criticism. How, how do you do when people criticize you? If you have his approval... Oh, well, you, you got criticism from the world. It's, it's not going to carry as much weight because you're, you're more concerned about what God says about you. And then cynical and critical insensitivity to others, you're not going to have much mercy and grace, a lack of confidence and authenticity in relationship. You don't even want to get close to people because you don't want them to really know who you really are. You struggle with all the struggles inside, but when you understand your completeness in Christ and what he says about you, then you're going to open up to others and you're going to be able to share your struggles. And then that's... That's going to give them the, the opportunity to be able to share their struggles, creates a real safe environment, and then that's where Christ meets us. A lack of confidence and joy in prayer and worship, an addictive behavior coming from a deep sense of guilt and shame, little or wrong motivation to live a holy life. The wrong motivation would be fear and pride. Right motivation is a heart captivated, smitten by Jesus. And then suffering will be seen as punitive rather than purifying. I know people that have gone through long-term suffering and, they, and I've had them come up to me and say, is God punishing me? No. No. It's not double jeopardy. Jesus paid for all of your sin. God's purifying you. He's with you. He's not going to abandon you. He loves you. He's going to see you through this. And, uh, and then the last one, success will inflate us and failure will deflate us. In other words, we'll misplace our identity, we'll put it in our performance in some way, whether it be our marriage or our kids or whatever, and then when they're doing well or when we're doing well, we're gonna be inflated. When we're not doing so well, we're not, we're gonna be deflated. And, um, and that's part of it. And here's the prayer that I want us to end with right here. And I'm gonna pray this. I want you to keep your eyes open and, and look at this prayer and make this prayer your prayer and pray it this next week as you come back next weekend and we're gonna talk about this spirit-filled life as this stuff works deeper into our heart. But notice what it says here. Father God, 
by grace through faith in the indispensable and costly love of Christ on the cross, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I have done that would make you love me less. Think about that just for a moment. I mean, that if his love would, would, would travel from your head into your heart, oh my goodness, that would, that would make all the difference in your life just to live in that sweet spot of his love knowing that the creator loves you. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. As you have been to me, help me to be to others. As I pray, I'll measure your love. What's the measure of his love? The cross. Wow, God, you love me. It's amazing how much you love me. I'll measure your love by the cross. What's the measure of his power working in you? Resurrection. And I'll measure your power working in me by the resurrection. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.